We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. There are, uh, I think, a few of these left on the back table. If you did not get one last week or you forgot it or lost it somewhere, uh, there are a few there. And uh, we can also make more copies of those. I was um, going to put George on the spot here for a second. I was blessed this morning to hear that he was able to take one of these and give it to, uh, I guess, a waiter um, at a restaurant that he was uh, at. And um, that's wonderful. We want to get the Word of God into people's hands. I'm glad it could be used in that way. I honestly hadn't thought of it as much of a tract, but uh, it can be. It's a little bigger than what maybe normally would give, but um, it definitely um, can be helpful in that way. So this morning, um, we're going to continue in our series on evangelism, personal evangelism. And this morning, I want us to consider the mindset and methods of evangelism. Uh, The first week, if you remember back, was kind of just an introduction that we gave, and we focused on some of the challenges, the difficulties that we face in evangelism, some of those humps that we have to get over both inwardly but also uh, recognizing the external challenges that we face, the unbelieving hearts, the darkened hearts of man. And then last week we looked at the fundamentals of the gospel, so the content of the gospel, what is the gospel, and we walked through this sheet, this handout that you have uh, with you. And um, we'll, we'll reference some of it this morning, uh, but my, our primary focus this morning will be the mindset and methods of, of evangelism. And what I want to call out is that a biblical mindset and biblical convictions will drive us as believers to biblical methods in our evangelism. Let me say that again. Having a biblical mindset and biblical convictions will drive us to biblical methods in evangelism. It is common uh, to hear people say that we live in a world that is far worse than it was 30, 40, or 50 years ago. While it may be true that the world waxes worse and worse, let me encourage us with this thought. It's not time to tie the knot and hang on tight until Christ returns. As the world continues its deep descent into darkness and chaos, we ought not to neglect to pray this kind of prayer. God, keep our hearts from growing cold to the lawless and barbaric souls dying around us. A friend recently said this, and I, it was uh, just stuck with me. He said, we spend too much time shouting at the dark than we do shining the light. We see the chaos around us, the evil that's flourishing, and we get upset about it, we get angry about it, we vent about it to one another as believers. And we spend so much time doing that that we forget that we are to be shining the light into that dark world. While the world affirms wrong as right, 
we are to be preaching the truth out into the darkness. As we have been learning, this requires a clear understanding of the gospel, of its content and how we are to present it. But it also requires us to have biblical convictions and a mindset which will lead to faithful gospel witness. Without these biblical convictions to inform our methods of evangelism, it will certainly result in unbiblical approaches to our evangelism. So in the time that we have this morning, I want us to first consider the mindset and biblical convictions necessary for faithful gospel witness, and then we will also explore the methods necessary for faithful gospel witness. First, we need to remember and remind ourselves that the Word of God commands supreme authority and power. The Word of God commands supreme authority and power. We'll be looking at various verses this morning, and you're welcome to, to follow along. Let's begin by looking at Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19, beginning in verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great Reward. In our gospel witness, as we think about it and as we share it with others, we need to remind ourselves that the Word of God commands supreme authority and power because it is perfect, it is pure, it is righteous, it is true. Psalm 19 tells us this. And as we share the gospel with others, we need to affirm the fact that God's word is true. It is truth. Therefore, it has power and authority because it is the word of God. John chapter 17, verse 17 says this, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is, you know it, truth. I hope there is no doubt in your mind this morning that God's word is the truth and it is powerful and authoritative. And that is what we need to relay in our gospel witness. A firm commitment to God's word as the truth is paramount to evangelism. Of course, the unbeliever alters reality to his or her own view to suit their desires, and so they, they seek to 
alter the fact that God's word is true, and they begin to say, no, what I think is true is true. Moral relativism. Why do they do that? They alter that because they want to fulfill their own desires. They want a truth that suits what they desire and not what the God's word desires from them. Truth, we know, however, is not relative. It does not come from within, as they want to tell us it does. Rather, it is given to us from without, from God, as he has revealed himself and spoken to us through his word. Affirming any other source than God's word as the truth will greatly hinder our evangelism. Of course, we believe that, we know that, but do we relay that in our evangelism? Do we look to God's word as the sole source of truth, calling them to believe it as true and nothing else as the truth? Or do we, do we allow them to undermine what is true by trying to convince us that truth comes from some other source, culture, society, Truth is ever-changing. No, God's word is pure. It stands forever. It is the truth. Secondly, not only is God's word the truth, as we consider the fact that God's word commands supreme authority and power, but we also know that the word of God creates life. It creates life. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. If you would, please. Romans chapter 1. Verse 16 begins with these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Pause for a moment. Can you say that? Are you ashamed? Perhaps we are at times, and that's what keeps us from sharing the gospel. Ashamed of the ridicule, ridicule we'll receive, mocking, oh, that's just old, old news, old material. It's not relevant today. Paul writes that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The word of God creates life. It creates new life in the person who responds in saving faith. It allows them to experience everlasting life. It creates in them a new heart, which no longer desires the things of, of the flesh, because they have entered into a new realm, the realm of Christ. They are a new man, Colossians 3 tells us, Romans 5. In our gospel witness, we need to remind ourselves, both personally and as we convey it and share it with others, that the word of God creates 
life. It gives new life. Look at one more verse here, Second Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 5 in the following. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it, is the God, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That shining forth, giving light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus is what brings about that new life. As they embrace that, as the Spirit of God works in them so that they can understand the knowledge of God, they are given new life. That is the power of of the gospel witness in the hearts of the unbelieving. Secondly, in our biblical convictions, convictions necessary for faithful gospel witness, we not only affirm that the word of God commands supreme authority and power, but secondly, we must affirm that apart from Christ, people are dead in trespasses and sins. The problem, my friends, is spiritual death, not merely sickness. People are not generally okay or generally good people. Yes, they'll try to tell you that when you're witnessing to them. Perhaps we also told someone that at one point. But that is not the case. That's not what the Bible teaches. The unbelieving person cannot pull themselves out of the sinful mire that they are in, despite what they think. And they most likely think they're not in a mire of sin. Paul calls these kind of people futile in their mind, empty-minded. Ephesians 4.18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. This is what is called total depravity or total inability to respond without the work of the Spirit convicting them, bringing about a saving, repentant faith. This doctrine teaches us from the Bible that every part of man, his mind, his will, emotions, and flesh, have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. And the unbelieving person must understand this when we share the gospel with them. 
And it must drive our witness as well so that we clearly communicate the gospel, helping them understand their desperate need for Christ. Nothing in and of themselves can take them out of the state that they are in. They are spiritually dead, as we ourselves once were as well. This idea of total depravity, spiritual death, penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything is tainted by sin, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us this. The spiritually dead person, we must also recognize, though culpable for their sins, is being held captive by Satan. Doing the devil's bidding. And apart from hearing the gospel and the Spirit of God giving them that new life, they will die in their sins. Romans 6. My brother beat me there. For the wages of sin is death. Right? Of course, we know the other side of that, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy 2, though, we can look there for a moment, also helps us in this line of thinking. 2 Timothy 2. Beginning in verse beginning in verse twenty three. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle in all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. Our gospel witness must be done in a form of humility, even when people are opposing God's message. Why? Paul tells us. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. We of all people ought to pity them, knowing that they are darkened in their hearts and held captive by the devil. Do we have that kind of humility in our hearts and our gospel witness? Despite the ignorance of their hearts and the opposition that they show, knowing that God may grant that person repentance if we are patient enough with them to share the truth. Secondly, in our affirming of Christ's work, and that apart from Christ, people are dead in trespasses and sins, we not only recognize the problem is spiritual death and not merely sickness, but also we recognize and affirm that the solution is new birth by the Spirit not simply therapy. 
In sharing the gospel, we must be truthful to the solution to man's problem. What is man's problem? Sin. The gospel promises the forgiveness of sins, new birth, life, eternal life, and justification, amongst many other blessings. And so, in sharing the gospel, we must be careful not to relay that salvation is simply an answer to all their problems. It first and foremost addresses one particular problem, and that is their sin. In other words, we must not preach a message that simply promises to satisfy the felt needs of the individual. This is a faulty method and mindset. And it is not a biblical conviction in which ought to uh, move and drive our gospel witness. We know, in fact, that salvation does not guarantee that their marital problems will simply go away. And to, so to tell them, you know, believe in Jesus and he'll take away those problems. It's not necessarily true. Yes, God's word does address these matters, these situations, these difficulties, and he can give you wisdom to overcome these things. It doesn't promise to immediately remove anxiety or depression, though those things may eventually disappear as the Spirit of God works in them. True enough, as we said, God's word does provide wisdom and counsel in these areas, But our gospel message should be centered around what Christ's atoning work did for us on the cross, not their marital problems, not their anxiety, not their depression, not the felt needs, not the physical needs they have, not the financial needs they have. If we're going about telling people that if you believe, Jesus will take all your problems away, we're not being true, we're not walking in biblical convictions. We know, in fact, that the reality is that the Christian life is not easy. And it's very likely that the present difficulties in their marriage may get even worse if the spouse is not a believing person. They may face even more difficulties in their life than before they were even saved. We must be careful in presenting the gospel that we not cater to their felt needs, but to their real need, the need for forgiveness of sins, their need for spiritual life, new life. Finally, In our affirming of the fact that apart from Christ, people are dead in trespasses and sins, we also must affirm that all people bear the image of God. All people bear the image of God. You know Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The foundation for our constitution as man, that we are created in the image of God. And so that ought to drive us in our biblical convictions to share the gospel to all people. All people possess inherent value and worth and should be treated as such. 
Now, that's not always easy to do. Perhaps that person has a strange, uh, unnatural desires, as Romans 1 puts it. Perhaps uh, there are just hard people to get along with. But nothing excuses us from sharing Christ with them. There is absolutely no one that does not deserve to hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond to its call. As image bearers of God, we must uphold the value and worth of all people, even the vilest of men, even the Adolf Hitlers of this world. And we must make every effort to reach them before their time runs out. We've considered now the biblical convictions and mindset for a faithful gospel witness, but let us move on to the methods necessary for faithful gospel witness. First and foremost, we must leverage the power of God's word. Look with me at Acts chapter 17. We looked at this back uh, on our first week of this series, kind of as a case study for understanding the examples of the apostles and their preaching of the gospel. Let's look there just for a moment again, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1 through verse 4. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis in uh, Apollyanna, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. What was Paul's method here? He reasoned from his intellect, from philosophy, from apologetics? No. He reasoned from the scriptures. And God's word worked. Look with me at Acts chapter 18, verse 27. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when they arrived, he, helped, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, what? Showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. I know there's more context to this, this uh, passage But the theme that we're looking at here is that if we simply use God's word, 
and recognize its power, it will work as the Spirit works in them. I hope this encourages us that it's not up to our eloquent speech, it's not up to our philosophical minds, our ability to to, uh, reason from philosophy, from the mere intellect, but it is simply preaching the word. One more example, Acts chapter 19, and there's many more like this. Perhaps this is, uh, you could take this as a homework assignment to find these examples where it says something of the language, they reason from the scriptures, they preached from the scriptures. There's many, many more instances of this in the book of Acts and, and throughout the New Testament. But Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10 This is Paul, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. I'll just stop there for a moment. We, um, we've had this, we've been having this conversation of evangelism, and Pastor took us through some passages in Acts yesterday in our men's prayer study, uh, trying to draw out some themes from these examples. One of which was that in many instances, or perhaps we should say most instances. It was not one-on-one evangelism, but it was one-on-ten, or one-on-a-hundred, or maybe, you know, ten-on-fifty, if, if all the apostles were there. I think another theme that we find through these examples is that these were not just one-off conversations. Paul would go into the synagogue week after week, reasoning, building relationships. And here we see him reasoning for how long? Three months. How often do we get discouraged when, after two times of sharing, they still haven't responded? (laughs) What's going on? We follow their example, and we know and understand that these things can take time. It says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but, excuse me, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Are we like the example we see from Paul, leveraging the power of the word of God? It's as simple as that, my friends. Knowing God's word and then presenting it in a persuasive way, reasoning from it that Jesus is the Christ. Secondly, in in the methods necessary for faithful gospel witness, we must... Build relationships. We must build relationships. I hadn't thought of these examples before, but in my study uh, and reading, um, I think we can learn a wonderful example from Matthew, the tax collector. Look with me at Luke, 
chapter 5. with me at verse 27 in the following. Speaking of Jesus, it says, After these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Look what's next, though. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Do you see what's going on here? Matthew responds to Jesus' call, I think both in a saving way, but also to a discipling kind of way, as one of Jesus' disciples. But then he goes and does what? He gathers all of his friends to his house to hear Jesus preach to them. Verse 30, And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here we can learn from Jesus. He answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, But those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Following the example of Matthew, are we building relationships? Are we fostering redemptive relationships, calling them to believe, bringing them into a context where they can hear the gospel? Or are they just simply friends that we have outside the context of church? We invite them into our home for some friendly conversation, but we neglect their greatest need. They need Christ. And Matthew's first response is, I'm going to get them into my home so that they can hear Christ. Do we have that kind of response? In our thinking, in our method of evangelism? My friends, begin by sharing the gospel with those you already have relationships with. I'm not saying don't witness to the person that you rub shoulders with on, in the store, on the bus, while you're waiting in line for your coffee. But God, I, I can presume, has put so many people in your life already, friends, family members, co-workers. You have so many wonderful opportunities. These relationships potentially can be some of the most fruitful witnessing opportunities that you have since there is already an established relationship with them. Following the example of Matthew, and we could also look at the example of Zacchaeus in chapter 19 of Luke, we must be developing intentional opportunities to share the gospel. Invite your friends, your co-workers, or family over for dinner. And take a few minutes afterwards to share the gospel with them. Perhaps at your Thanksgiving dinner this year, there will be unbelieving friends or family, your Christmas dinner, some other gathering 
what a wonderful opportunity to take a few minutes and to share with them the best thing they could ever hear. It may not be easy to pull up the bootstraps to get the gumption, but following Matthew's example, he didn't hesitate. He understood their great need, and he responded. Of course, there's many ways in which you can reach them. Maybe it's not a family dinner or Christmas dinner. You can ask your neighbor if they would like to study the Bible with you. What a wonderful opportunity. Once a week, go over to their house. Read some scripture with them. Build a relationship if you don't have one already with them. Take a coworker out for coffee or a meal. Ask them if you can share with them the good news of salvation. Start a small group study with your friends. Walk them through the Word of God from beginning to end, giving them, an under, giving them a picture and understanding of what is the Bible. If you want resources for that kind of study, I, I have some. Come and ask me or pastor. There's wonderful uh, resources to do that kind of a study. There are endless means by which you can build redemptive relationships. As I just said, ask Pastor Matt or myself, and we can give you many, many ideas to reach those people. In fact, we are even more than willing to come with you, put that out, and meet with those people. We'll come along to your coffee date, and we'll share with them the good news of salvation with you. Finally, one more area as we conclude our time. As we consider the methods necessary for faithful gospel witness, we must not only leverage the power of God and his word, not only build relationships, but we must also be ready to offer persuasive answers to every argument and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Perhaps this is one of the most difficult parts of evangelism, having to face those objections and answer them, give a reason for the faith that is in you. But again, we can leverage God's word in answering those objections. Remember, my friends, truth is objective and God is its source. God has revealed himself, both in creation, and he has spoken through his word. We can give a defense and ought to be persuasive in our answers to every argument. Those who object that the Genesis 1 account, it's here, my friends. Just speak it. Remind them that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days. Looked into the word. Show them from scripture that this is true. Don't allow them to persuade you that the Bible is not God's word. The Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired and has not been corrupted. 
like many want to tell us it has been. We can affirm with absolute assurance that the Bible has been accurately preserved in the copies that we have today. Don't let them tell you any other thing. Don't let them tell you that mankind is a product of the evolutionary process. Take them to Genesis 1. Man was created by God in the image of God. In lieu of pastor study, don't allow them to get away with saying that there perhaps was simply a local flood. No, the Bible tells us that God destroyed the whole earth in a worldwide flood. The fossil record provides extensive evidence of this, amongst other things that we see. Anyone who objects that there are more than two genders, and we have that today, we can show them from God's word that according to God's design, only two genders exist, male and female. And gender matches biological sex. It's as simple as that. Don't let them confuse you in other, any other kind of way or with any other persuasive argument. They are wrong. God's word is right. Don't let them tell you that marriage is not sacred. Marriage is sacred. And lifelong relationship, a lifelong relationship instituted by God between one man and one woman. And that is it. Also, we must affirm, and I, and I feel and I sense and I'm afraid that we've forgotten that even this within the church, that God made the sexes complementary. God tasked the man with the responsibility of lovingly protecting and providing, and the woman with the responsibility of helping. Both equally value, valued and worth in God's eyes and one another's eyes, but with complementary roles. One last thing in our method for necessary gospel witness. We must pray. We must pray all times, at the beginning, during, after, A highlight of the church's dependence upon prayer occurs as the official as the official beginning of missions takes place in Acts 13:3. It says, "And when they had fasted and prayed, they sent them away." Without the enablement of God, our efforts and missions are worthless. And so we must determine to have biblical a biblical mindset and convictions in our evangelism. And when we do, it will inevitably lead us to the outworking of biblical methods in our witness. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, if we fail in any way to have a mindset that is driven by the word of God,
and by its truth. Convictions that are contrary or opposed or neglecting grounding in your word. May you correct our thinking this morning. And Lord, in so doing so, may you also drive and lead us to biblical methods in our evangelism. May we recognize the supreme authority and power of your word as it goes forward. May we be servants in your hands, recognizing the value and worth of every single person bearing your image. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.